Welcome to the Also Joe podcast. I'm Joe. And I am also Joe. We're going to change things up a little bit today. We are not going to talk about one movie. We're going to talk about a handful of movies. Today's topic is missed opportunities or movies that were adaptions of source material that, in our opinion, missed the mark. Now, this doesn't mean these were bad movies. It just means that they missed opportunities with excellent source material to take advantage of some interesting plot twists or elements. Yeah, I mean, I'd say one of my movies is a bad movie, but that's (laughs) beyond the point here at the moment. (laughs) Right, and I think if we defined a missed opportunity as simply being a bad adaption, I think we could talk about a lot of movies Say half of the comic book movies that have ever been made would be considered a missed opportunity. But in this case, I want to focus more where it's not just the fact that the movie is bad that makes it a missed opportunity, but rather that there's some key element of the source material that makes it great that was then ignored or changed for the adaption. Agreed. And I have some fantastic examples for that. So this is going to be a great conversation today, Joe. All right, let's get started. I think I'll go first because I think I have a few more than you. Yes, you do. And I think the the first one is going to be a fairly short one. I want to get it out of the way. It's almost, I think I'd call it a runner-up. Um, and that would be Captain America Civil War. Ooh. This film is, in my opinion, an excellent movie. Yeah, it really is. So I'm curious what you're going to say. The reason I think it's a missed opportunity is because I have read a lot of the Civil War run. It was one of those runs where the storyline permeated all of the different Marvel comic brands. So to know every detail of it, you have to have read not just the Civil War series, but the comics from that time period from Fantastic Four, Spider-Man, Iron Man, sure. etc. So I'm not going to claim that I know everything. So if anybody listens to this and knows that I'm wrong about something, awesome. Email me, tweet us. But to the best of my knowledge, this is my position on Civil War comics versus the movie. I think the movie's great, but I don't think it's an adaption of Civil War. Civil War, the comic book, is basically the story of, well, first of all, it's set in a world where there are hundreds of superheroes and supervillains. So it's very different from the MCU at the time where there were about 12 total. Sure. So there's hundreds. And then it's all started when a reality TV show following a young group of superheroes, they instigate combat with villains that results in a elementary school being blown up and hundreds of children dying. So rather than in Civil War, the movie, where it's basically one kid dying and Tony Stark being, you know, sad about that. And then some diplomats from Wakanda, I think they said it was like 17, 15, something like that. So it's a much smaller scale impact of who was hurt that was the catalyst for the government action that leads to a civil war. Whereas in the comics, it's much, much bigger scope. The whole country is is rising up against heroes, etc. I think they try to tie that in a little bit, you know, when they, I forget his name, but the, the general who was talking to the Avengers while they were at the, the Avengers compound, they were showing examples of, you know, New York and I forget where Thor 2 took place on Earth when the elves were attacking. I was in London. Okay, got it. Yeah, the, the, just the destruction of all the events. So they're saying, okay, 
we can't have you superheroes running amok anymore. So we got to put some regulation behind you. But yeah, I, I get it. Right. Small tangent. And this is going to take longer than I expected. But tangent, we might do an episode on Civil War, on Civil War later. But I'm just going to say that's probably my least favorite scene in the whole movie is the justification for the Accords. I think there could have been better reasons. I think that Tony's personal reasons for supporting it are a better argument for that side of the issue. I think that, and it's Secretary Ross is who you're thinking of. Yeah, there you go. Um, His arguments are awful. When he points to (laughs) New York, you may remember that the government's plan was to blow up New York. Yep, they were going to nuke it. To suggest that the collateral damage caused by the Avengers is the reason why we can't have the Avengers when in if they hadn't done their thing and the government had actually been in charge, it would have killed millions of people. So that's not a really good example of the collateral damage caused by unregulated hero work, because the regulated hero work would have caused a million times more collateral damage. Thor isn't a human. He's not under anyone's jurisdiction. An alien invaded in London and Thor showed up and stopped it. Um, and as yep. far as I know, there wasn't any collateral damage that movie didn't portray anyone dying there was physical damage to buildings and vehicles but nobody was seen you could probably assume that somebody somewhere got crushed by a random spaceship or something but really again those examples given by ross in that scene really point to the problem with super villains not the problem with superheroes so but that's beside the point going back to the (laughs) comparison of the source material to the film the source material is much grander, much bigger story because it, it takes place in a universe where there are hundreds of heroes. So the sides of the Civil War are huge. And then there is the Spider-Man element of Civil War. So over the course of the story in the comics, it's obviously it's Tony versus Cap and Peter Parker sides with Tony as he does in the, the movie. And it's actually one of the biggest moments in that era of Spider-Man storylines, which is that Peter Parker unmasks himself. And also in the comics, the big crux of the issue is that all superheroes have to reveal their identity to the government. Got it. Okay. In the MCU, nobody has a secret identity. Maybe you could argue Bruce Banner does, but they make a point of in the very first movie in the MCU kind of mocking secret identities by having it end yeah. literally the last words of the movie are I'm Iron, Iron Man. Man. They don't like secret identities in those movies. And that's, that's fine. They decided to go a different route because maybe it was because as a follow up to Spider-Man where that was basically all those movies were about the Raimi trilogy. It was all about his secret identity. So I get it. And that's okay. But again, different approach, different perspective, but Spider-Man unmasks himself on national television to declare his support for the government regulation and asking Captain America to stand down. Um, And it leads to conflict. There's a fight. Spider-Man and Captain America take each other on. It's one of my favorite moments in comic books. It's a great scene of combat. And ultimately it leads to, as you kind of see in the movie, it leads to Spider-Man changing his mind, realizing that he's misunderstood. He's uh, misjudged. Steve Rogers and he's starting to realize what a how correct Steve Rogers is is in his position and that Tony's kind of being villainous and ultimately leads to Peter Parker switching sides again. Um, there's a great scene where he has the iron spider suit that Tony built and 
Tony reveals that he's hidden fail safes into it so he can shut down Spider-Man anytime, at which point Peter reminds Tony that he's also a genius computer programmer and he found those fail safes and turned them off. And so it's a <laughs> fun back and forth. Um, anyway, I think Civil War the movie is great, but I think the comic series was incredible. And there's flaws in it. There's problems with with it, but it was incredible in its scope. I thought there were so many great moments in it. Um, it ultimately leads to my favorite comic book moment ever, which I think I've sent to you, I've talked to you about. It's at some point in the storyline, Thor, who in the comic universe at this time had died, Thor mm-hmm. shows up, even though he's dead. And it's revealed that he was cloned by Tony Stark to help them win right. the Civil War. And he kills... Um, Goliath, who's like another giant man, like Ant-Man becomes giant. Um, it's it's a big moment and it's a big turning point in the Civil War that actually causes the other side to gain more followers because there's this moment of horrible violence. And in my opinion, the greatest moment in all of comics that I've read, there's a lot I could argue that with myself, but my favorite moment in comics is when months or years later for other reasons in other comic series, Thor's back, the real Thor, and he confronts Tony over his violation of his property and his body by creating sure. a clone. And it's just, a, it's a fantastic scene where Tony is full on government agent. He works for the government. He's the secretary of something and he's all business and we've got to fill out, you know, blah, blah, blah. And you've got to, you've got to agree to, sign up with the government because this is the way things are now. I believe at this point in the comic series, Captain America has been assassinated. So the world is very bleak and Thor does not care and basically just takes Iron Man out without even moving. He just pops an EMP and flattens him and walks away. (laughs) And it's, it's fantastic. And that's those kind of moments. I'm basically just, fanboying about the civil war comic series but those kind of moments are to me when i think civil war that's what i think of is those epic moments peter parker taking off his mask and uh jameson realizing that his photographer is spider-man those little moments and then the big moments with um thor and iron man i think the story is fantastic and so while i think civil war the movie was a really good captain america movie with really good storyline I think that the character work between Tony and Steve is incredible and it sets up so many things that are paid off later in Infinity War and in Endgame. I think it's great, but I don't think it's a very good adaption of Civil War. Sure. Use of the name is a little frustrating because they're already so much closer to being able to do a proper Civil War now. Just one, one MCU phase later, they've got so many more superheroes having brought in the guardians of the galaxy and you've got captain Marvel and the black Panther movie brought in more characters that are probably going to become superheroes. And you've got the TV shows bringing more people in. They're already like three times the size universe. If they had just waited and done civil war as maybe the finale of a phase, um, phase five finale could have been civil war with hundreds of characters fighting at hundreds of characters. And they're all grander of an end game. I think that would have been fascinating to see. You could have had a mature Peter Parker going through a similar situation since he's the only character in the series that seems to have a secret identity. 
I think there was potential to do more and they, I think they wasted the title civil war sure. on a movie that really could have just been called captain America and iron man or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I think creative, uh, that's probably my issue with most of the things that we'll be talking about today is just creative direction. And again, it, it all comes back down to, they chose to call it this name and that's why I have a gripe with it. So it makes total sense. All right, let's move on to the next movie. We can go with one of yours. You want to go with your, you, which one frustrates you less? So the one that frustrates me less would be um, 2005's Watchmen, which is the adaptation of the graphic novel in the same name, Watchmen. Um, have you seen the Watchmen movie or read the graphic novel? Have you read the novel as well? I have not. Got it. Okay. Had I not read the graphic novel, I think I would enjoy the movie for kind of like the little bit of action movie and uh, superhero-esque movie that it is. But having read the graphic novel and then seen the movie, I was super excited to see the adaptation of it. Now, there were two other movie attempts at The Watchmen, which were much earlier, and I believe one failed in production, and the other one was just horrible. Um, but moving on from that, so Zack Snyder directed this. I believe he had just come off of 300. 300, yep, and that's actually probably why he was chosen, because 300 was a, such a success, and they wanted to bring some success to it, because they knew, they knew this was going to be a big project, right? So a couple things. First, really just to kind of cover the character differences. So Ozymandias, his motivations throughout were just completely changed for the screen. And I'm not really certain why I, I again, I, there's no real reason why so what were just, his motivations his, in the film. So in the film, he wanted to create an event that would get everyone. So to, to, to backpedal a little bit, the whole concept of Watchmen is superheroes are outlawed. They've caused uh, massive issues in the past, and the government has outlawed superheroes or anyone acting like vigilante justice capabilities. So Ozymandias is sick and tired of the world at war, and his motivation is to create some sort of event that will get all of humanity on the same page and stop fighting each other. So it's it's a no it's a noble a noble right, thing an attempt to avert nuclear war. Yeah, it, exactly. The difference is the movie changes it from the sense of he frames Dr. Manhattan and causes this cataclysmic event where Dr. Manhattan actually effectively does nuke a large portion of the population to get Russia and America on the same page and the rest of the world against uh, Dr. Manhattan. And he goes and he, he leaves Earth. I believe at the end of the movie, it's been a while since I've seen it, but he just outright leaves. Whereas the graphic novel, um, he comes up with this scheme and makes a, basically an alien appear in New York. Uh, it's a giant squid monster and nobody can stop it. And then it all of a sudden just explodes and it kills a lot of people in New York, but it's just localized. Um, so it's, it's drastically different from there. And really just to comment on it as a whole, for whatever reason, Zack Snyder chose to, and they're not outright superheroes in the movie, but he basically gave them all super abilities. Like all, all the fight scenes that you notice, they're super strong. They can punch a person and they'll go flying across the room. Yeah, Rorschach kicks villains across rooms and through walls, breaks arms with just one swipe of his hand. Effortless. Yeah, everyone is, is a you know, if not superhuman in some sense, definitely well above and beyond uh, any normal human capability and every single one of them that it features is like that for whatever reason. Again, I think it's, 
it's probably just easier in that sense to to make a movie and make it exciting as far as action scenes go. But in the graphic novel, the only superhuman was Dr. Manhattan. Everyone else was just a person. <laughs> so none of them had extraordinary abilities whatsoever. It was just normal people fighting. And they dealt a lot with that, like uh, as, as they're going through um, combating crime and that. They're just normal people. So they got shot, they got stabbed, etc. And they all kind of battle with these issues. So yeah, you definitely don't get that from the movie. No, not at all. <laughs> um, kind of moving on from a couple other character differences. And so Ozymandias, I, I, I talked about that a little bit. I will say, as someone who hasn't read the graphic novel in the movie, I don't like Ozymandias at all. He's so obviously the villain right from the start. And yet the movie <laughs> yeah. so obviously wants you to think he's not. The movie makes it clear he's the villain. And I feel like that's Zack Snyder's fault he made too much ominous stuff about him. And yet he, it, the, he then makes the ending seem like it was supposed to be a twist when you find out he's the villain. Right. It was so clear from the very beginning this he's this sniveling little guy in a muscle suit is what it looks like. They should have gotten an actor right. that had a, maybe a squarer jawline and a, I don't know, a, a <laughs> twinkling blue well, eyes and looked more charming. Yeah. This guy looked it, like, He's up to something. Yeah, I, I, I wrote it down as a comment. But, but again, that's just a gripe I have generally with movies and adaptations is they they generally do a terrible job at representing the, the size of characters. Um, Ozymandias was supposed to be a very large man. Um, and in this movie, he was gotcha. not. He was wearing a bodysuit that was almost intentional, I believe, to, to make it be a bodysuit. But Zack Snyder loves his bodysuits. He got better at it in the future because I know... Uh, Henry Cavill is wearing a bodysuit in in Superman, and I know that Ben Affleck is, but they look less shockingly distracting. Sure. Uh, It doesn't look like you don't have the skinny neck coming out of a massive body problem that I think you kind of have in Watchmen. Some of that might have been just due to CGI as well, but that's that's beyond the point. I feel like they could have gotten a different actor because none of these roles, I think, really required a a depth of character that you couldn't explain away or or hide within the other act the other actors interacting with them but the final comment i have about ozymandias is as well is they made him appear a lot crazier in this like right right from the get-go he just seems kind of off the wall and and standoffish all the time that he's he's constantly up to no good and that was that wasn't in the graphic novel the graphic novel he all of his motives were, yes, to protect and further humankind. He wasn't a, I mean, again, he was kind of crazy because he wanted to, he created a giant space alien to appear in New York and then exploded. <laughs> so, so there's that. But his motives were much more good of, good of heart. Right. Yeah. It's just kind of silly. With, and again, I, I think a part, part of this is just due to it'd be hard to adapt to the screen, but this, the graphic novel had a comic within a comic that a person on the street was just reading it as long. But the whole point of that was is kind of to draw par- parallels to Ozymandias. The main character in the comic within a comic was struggling internally with the very same issue that Ozymandias was. And at the very end of the graphic novel, Oz- when Ozymandias comes up with this plan he kind of has this metaphorical moment where he's talking about well i'm gonna do what's right for humanity because i'm quote unquote the chosen one and no one else has this ability to do what i know i need to do right 
and it has that 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 parallel and it helps the audience realize that where again in Zack Snyder's movie he just appears like he's like he's crazy so it doesn't make any sense but anyway any other thoughts on um, that movie any other reasons that you are disappointed in it as an adaption specifically yeah it really it all comes down to the characters so and just um Dr. Manhattan he also was kind of put out there where for and for whatever reason too, they he, Zack Snyder had him naked a whole lot in this movie, and he was naked in the graphic novel too. But it doesn't add anything to the character where you need to show blatant nudity like that. So that that was kind of an, an issue. But that sounds I had. like it was an accurate adaptation, not. Well, no, because in the in the in the graphic novel, he was nude sometimes simply because, again, he's a radioactive man and clothes kind of melt gotcha. off him. But he realized that made people uncomfortable. And he put clothes on himself, like he made clothes to be able to be able to fit himself. But also in in the graphic novel too, he kind of had a much slower loss of humanity. You know, it's it's this he was experimented on, and he became Doctor Manhattan. So he was a person beforehand. In the movie adaptation, he was just not a really a person from the get go. Like he didn't connect with humanity at all. They didn't really show that at all. In the graphic novel, it was a very slow progression of him losing his humanity. Yeah, I think the movie, because the movie flashes back to how he became Dr. Manhattan. But I think mm-hmm. when the movie starts and the timeline, the present timeline of the movie is years after he's been Dr. Manhattan. And yeah, he's very much yep. distant. And he even says so that he doesn't really care about humanity anymore. He's, you know, he's moved on, basically. Yeah, absolutely. Touching on Night Owl, they basically just made him Batman in in the movie adaptation. Like they just didn't even try to really hide it. They made his suit very look very similar to modern Batman movies and all that. When in the graphic novel, he he was somebody that was very much struggling with the whole thing of still being a, a superhero, quote unquote. That he was nervous at times. He knew that Rorschach was crazy. He was actually very scared of Rorschach throughout. He knew Dr. Manhattan's power levels were just astronomical and nobody would be able to stop him. And he was terrified of it. The movie didn't show you any of that side of him. He was just very stoic. And again, very much just like Batman, like everything's under control. But Silk Spectre, they also kind of ruined her character because I, I just thought she was annoying in the movie. If you recall, it's just every time she talked on screen, it was just like grating and annoying. Like she just wanted to comment and complain about things constantly. When in the graphic novel, she was just such a strong character uh, overall. She was w- one of the best fighters on, on, on the team. Um, just a super strong female character. And in the movie, they just kind of made her annoying and whiny, whiny the whole time, in my opinion. Um, but in two, in the movie really does miss out on a huge opportunity to explain why super, why superheroes are outlawed. It, it, it gives you a brief review of it during the opening credits. Basically because the comedian is, uh, psychopath. Essentially. Is essentially. Yeah. That's what the film portrays is that that's basically the reason they were outlawed. That's it. Right. Which I will say they picked a fantastic actor for the comedian. I don't know the gentleman's name. You probably know his name. Jeffrey Dean Morgan. Yes, he's a very good actor. I'm not a huge fan of who they chose the actor to be for for Rorschach, although I do think he did a good job at portraying Rorschach. Kind of a little bit crazy, kind of out there. It was small, but it like just point out that he, so Zach's. It's obvious that he tried to really stay close to the source material because there's actually a line in the graphic novel when Rorschach's in prison and the mob boss, I, th- I believe he is, is breaking into Rorschach's cell to 
kill Rorschach. He, you know, he he's he want he wants to kill him. In the graphic novel, he is using a blowtorch, and he says the line, "I can't wait to smell your singed skin" or something along those lines. He comments on burning Rorschach's skin with the blowtorch. Well, in the movie, they're not using a blowtorch; they're using a saw. But the guy still says the exact same line. I can't wait to smell your burnt skin. (laughs) Hold on a second. He's not using a blowtorch. Why why would he burn him with a saw? I don't I don't understand. They did. There was a lack of communication on set. They changed things and didn't change the line because it didn't change. Realized it didn't make sense as well. That same prison scene also was a massive fight scene. If you remember that. That's when uh, Silk Spectre shows up and Night Owl shows up and they're just fighting all these prisoners. It's like a it's like a side-scrolling beat-em-up video yes. game where they're just beating the crap out of prisoners over and over and over again. That was literally one frame in the graphic novel. They knocked out like two prisoners because they got out of their jail cell. They broke out Rorschach and then they're out. <laughs> and that's not that's not always necessarily a bad thing. Um, I think good adaptions have done that. Lord of the Rings, in my opinion, is a fantastic adaption, despite the fact that it takes a lot of liberties. It takes, it makes 10 minute battle scenes out of there was a great battle basically in the book. Right. So I'm okay with that, except in a case where, as you're pointing out, it seems like a lot of other things were maybe left out. A lot of other, a lot of character elements weren't explored that might be important to the overall story or character arcs and they decided to fill that time in a already very very long movie with more action scenes with just action when they could have just made more depth of the characters made you care about the characters a little bit more seeing seeing the actual struggles and it really and and this is where i'll end it is that's kind of the whole bit of it is that watchmen's about what if normal people stepped up to do superhero things you know, there's tons of Batmans out there and they're all just people trying to do their best. And then all of a sudden they're outlawed. And these people, that was a huge part of their identity was being superheroes. Now they're not allowed to be anymore. But there's kind of this this catastrophic buildup of the, the government and controlling this. And they know that Dr. Manhattan's out there now and he, there's going to be some sort of climatic event that's going to happen with him. And they're just trying their best to figure it out. And But at the end of the day, there's still people. And Snyder's like, ah, no, they're superheroes. Yeah. I, you're saying it's what you're describing sounds really interesting. What if normal people decided to be heroes and then they were banned and the, how would that psychologically impact them? That sounds like an interesting story. Right. Then I think, what was Watchmen the movie about? I don't know. I don't know what it's about. <laughs> it's really... about some maybe superpowered, maybe normal people in a stylized world doing some things i'm really not sure what the plot is or who the protagonist is is the protagonist rorschach they almost make it want to be that way because he's in the movie so much and so rorschach is like um in the graphic novel he's kind of the guy behind the scenes that is everyone knows he's a bit crazy but he's still like it's his whole life mission to figure out and prove a point and so he's the kind of the the back the back alley detective that's just searching for for answers, but also he's a really messed up person. <laughs> so Watchmen, Watchmen, very good. And that's your that's the one you're less annoyed about of the two movies you have to talk about. <laughs> yes, <today. laughs> yes. All right. The next movie we're going to talk about is I Robot. First, just to, some basic information about the movie. Um, I believe the movie came out in 2000. 
want to say 2004. I remember really enjoying it at the time. I was only a teenager. What did I know? Um, I probably haven't seen it since then, to be honest. I remember there being a massive amount of product placement in it. (laughs) I missed the product placement when I first saw it. Now, rewatching it, wow, there's a lot of product placement. (laughs) And also, it's not a very good movie. But that's not why I think it's a disappointing adaption. So the basic plot of iRobot is we're in a world where there are robots. They are appear to be fully artificial intelligence or a very, very good simulation of intelligence. And they are governed by the three laws of robotics. So the first law is a robot can never harm a human or through an action allow a human to come to harm. Law two, a robot must always obey an order given by a human unless it conflicts with the first law. And law three, the robot must protect itself unless it conflicts with the first or second law. Then the plot of the movie is there's some mystery around why did the creator of these robots kill himself? They discover that he created a new robot that could maybe think for itself because it has a second brain that doesn't have to follow the laws. And then the big twist at the end, spoiler alert, is that the big robot brain that helps run the factory is actually evil because crazy she has decided that in the most cliche of course that was the answer is the best way the 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 robot has misinterpreted protecting you must not allow humans to come to harm as we have to stop wars and pollution and the same humans are their own threat to themselves therefore uh, but try to give the villain some character by saying humans are bad kind of vague it's like it was maybe trying to make a point but didn't really make a point and that's that's the plot of iRobot the movie iRobot the source material it's a book i believe from the 50s by Isaac Asimov who came up with the idea of the three laws of robotics and the book is sure. actually a collection of nine short stories so there isn't a iRobot story but the nine short stories are basically just this author saying okay i've created this idea of sometime in the far future we'll have invented robots and we'll have given robots that have full intelligence and will have made sure that we build these laws to keep humans safe. What are some things that could happen? Sometimes they don't involve the laws, but usually they involve some sort of twist on how do you solve a problem knowing that the robots have to follow these three laws? So for example, there's a, a story where there are some humans trapped on a space station and their shielding is going to fail unless the robot can bring back fuel for them, but the fuel is dangerous to the robot. And so they, they have, they, somebody gave the robot the order, go get the fuel. But as he gets further away from them and closer to the fuel, the danger to him starts to grow to outweigh the order from them. So he starts running in a circle because he's, when he gets further away from the fuel, he's no longer in danger and he remembers he's supposed to follow the order. But then when he gets closer, the danger is so strong, it outweighs the order from the human and he's stuck in this loop. And they're trying to think of how, how can they convince him to come? They want to think, okay, if we can get him to come back, we'll give him a more explicit order and explain to him that we're in danger. We're going to die if you don't do this. So they, they put the robot in danger and that just adjusts the path where now he's confused between three points and he get and he's going crazy. And, and ultimately, it's solved by one of the scientists risks his life and goes outside and is going to die. And the robot sees him and immediately that over, overrides everything else. And he rescues the scientist 
and that's the, it's a short story. That's the yeah. idea. Is it's just an sure. interesting problem solved by this. There's another. I loved it. The story that a robot that was built and didn't come online until it was already on a space station where the job is to beam energy through microwave beams to different planets or space stations or, or spaceships. And this robot develops a belief that there are no planets or space stations and that the lights that he sees through the windows are actually just like small lights right outside the window. Doesn't believe that humans actually created it. And it's just an inch. I won't go into all the details of every one of these stories, but it's an interesting idea of exploring if you had artificial intelligence that was built on these rules. The challenges you would face with all right. of that and how it would play out. So sure. the movie sort of bases the story on two of those of, of the short stories. One is where the Dr. Calvin, who is a character in the movie in the books is one of the characters that's in most of the short stories. She takes a robot and adjusts the first law to simply say that the robot must not cause, must not harm a human, but removes the part about not allowing a human to come to harm. Got it. And that it then starts to become a problem where the robot actually becomes violence because she, and she starts to suspect that the robot's going to discover that, well, all it has to do is cause harm like, okay, I'm going to throw this at you because I know I can then catch it and save you. So I'm not going to cause harm because I know I'm going to catch it. But then after I throw it, I can change my mind because now it's just, I don't have to save you because I don't have to follow that part of the rule. <laughs> right. So it's, it's kind and that's the, the main robot, Sonny in iRobot the movie. It's kind of that a robot that's able to choose to not follow the laws, except they just gave him the ability to completely ignore the laws. So it's not it really the laws anymore. It it's just, completely unrelated. Right. Um, they basically just made a human. Bot. The final short story <laughs> is about in the future, the, all the economies of the world, there's like four regions of the world and the economies are run by giant positronic brains that basically run the world markets and, it's discovered, and it's actually over a couple different short stories that this takes place. It's discovered that these positronic brains are actually doing things that cause harm to certain groups of people because they are predictively seeing that those groups of people would lead to, like, there's people that are opposing robots. They're, like, fighting for human rights and get rid of robots and stuff. And so these brains are subtly, these ro robot brains are subtly harming those groups. To undermine <laughs> them, but it's it's revealed it's because the these robot brains have done the math and basically realized humanity is better off with us running the economies than without us. And so it's better for more of humanity if we're in charge. So we're going to undermine these groups, even if it harms some people, because it's better for more people overall, which is kind of what Vicky in the iRobot movie does is sure. she's like, yeah. it's better if some humans will be harmed as we force you all into your homes and lock you down and hold you at gunpoint because you'll be safer. But it's so it's, there's no nuance to it in the movie. It's, it's literally just a dictator, which is I know best and I'll right. And it, it like, she makes her entire argument in, a, big in a little clip show of explosions and pollution and soldiers in three seconds. And she's just like, <laughs> you guys kill each other and so the best way to keep you from so harm is to keep you from freedom or something is, and, i'm gonna keep you i'm gonna keep you in a pseudo cage protected by 
a robot. Right. It's <laughs> it's it's like the you know the the ultra restrictive parent who locks their kids in the basement because then they can't hurt themselves. Like it's there's right. no nuance to it, and it doesn't seem believable in the book. It's kind of the same thing, but it's take first it takes more time to for people to realize that it happens, and there's it's less black and white. It's more like you actually think about it and it's unclear. Is that, is it right or wrong? Whereas in the movie, it's just, just evil. It's just overtly wrong. Right. And it, you know, it's the response to this is you guys are, this is the best way to protect humanity. My logic is undeniable is Will Smith saying you have so got to die and killing her. (laughs) It, It takes what was an interesting science fiction series of thought experiments what if this, how would that play out? And it turns it into yeah. a dumb action movie. So that's why I, I think it's a letdown and it's more just that it was titled I robot. I don't actually mind the movie. It's got decent action. The music don't is okay. Will Smith is f- always entertaining the product placement and his constant <laughs> one liners is a bit annoying. I both hate and also love when I see Shia LaBeouf and anything. So I don't know how I feel about that, but overall it's a fine movie. It's not bad. I don't look at that movie and say, Oh, that's a horrible movie. We should review that on, on our podcast and talk about how awful it is. There's a number of things in it that are awful overall. It's fine, but they called it. I robot and I robot is not a dumb action story. I robot is a science fiction thinking story. Let's, let's think about difficult things. I think a lot of movies are are, are victim of that. You know, they they want to kind of have the preset audience, so to speak, and the recognition of and well, obviously in this case, iRobot, but that recognition of popularity is already there. So they feel like that's kind of a baked in audience, and that will help drum up interest and all that sort of thing. So that but that's what's just wrong with marketing, I suppose. So sorry, all you marketing people out there. <laughs> all right. So for the next one, do you want to do yours? The, my last yes. two are, are very similar. They're where the movie missed the entire premise of the source material. And mine is a video game. You've probably played it. Um, hopefully people are aware of it, but it is Max Payne. Uh, so a Rockstar game. I think it was came out in 2005, 2006, somewhere in there. I, I could be completely off with that. But anyway, fantastic story. Have you played Max Payne? No, I haven't. I played a game that was similar, but I haven't played it. I'm familiar okay. with with the general concept, though. Yeah, so g- give you the general general run through is just uh, so essentially, New York City police officer um, comes home from work one day, finds his family murdered. Jarring, right? Okay, well he's on now a hunt to figure out who did it. Um, there's a big drug in the game, which is referred to as V or Valkyrie. Um, it's basically super heroin um so he ends up leaving the police force and joins the dea and it's just on this hunt to find out who killed his family but the the video game involves there's a mafia aspect to it where he's working his way through the mafia and then finds out that the mob boss is actually controlled by a corporate tycoon and then he works his way up the corporate tycoon ladder to then find out that the government's involved as well and it's just kind of this big back and forth and this twist, these twists that you don't see coming and him working his way to ultimate justice for, for his family. The movie, on the other hand, just decides to... <laughs> I, my biggest gripe with Max Payne is that they literally could have just shortened a lot of the game. 
and made a perfect movie out of it. Not changed the source material whatsoever, and it would have been fantastic. Because Max Payne has a lot of drama to it, has a lot of action to it. It's all set up so that it could really just give you the a perfect what's it called when they run through more movies like in drawings, storyboards. They could use the game as a perfect storyboard and just adapt the movie from there. But they didn't. They they took out so many things, um, changed things in the movie. They changed who killed his family. It ended up being just a, a, an old partner of his. Doesn't really make a lot of sense in the movie versus the game. Twist betrayal, they, I guess. I I guess, but like they also. In the movie, they chose to make Max Payne realize it the whole time because towards the end of the actual movie, he has this flashback where he saw his partner running away after shooting his wife in the reflection of like a jewel in 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 his in his house. It's like, well, what? I don't I don't get it. <laughs> it just doesn't make it doesn't make any sense. But in the movie, it, the premise was is that the wife knew where the the V drug came from and that. Uh, they just got rid of um, the, the mafia really altogether. They have mafia in the movie, but they don't really allude to it other than hey, the mafia just exists and they have to deal with it. Um, but the wife was on to this corporate tycoon who made the drug and was going to expose them. And then the corporate tycoon hires Max Payne's partner to kill her. I, I, okay, that's that's fine, <laughs> um, I, I guess. Uh, Mila Kunis is in the movie as well. Mark Wahlberg plays Max Payne, which I don't have a problem with Mark Wahlberg playing Max Payne. He's generally a Mark Wahlberg is generally a good action movie actor, so I have no problem with with him. He actually kind of looks a little bit similar to Max Payne as well, so I'll, I'll give it that. But uh, Mila Kunis as is plays a character Mona Sachs, but they don't really even develop her at all. There's there they could have removed this character from the movie altogether, and you wouldn't know any difference. So the movie they don't give any development to it whatsoever. In the game, Mona is like a femme fatale type character. They they build up a bit. Um, there's there's some tension between her and Max. He kind of sees her as her, as her equal. She she's working alongside him as well. The the movie they like I said they could have completely removed her from the movie, and you wouldn't be missing anything. Ludacris is in the movie as well, and he just seems to nothing against Ludacris. I think he does okay in the movies that that he's in, but him as a detective is just terrible. <laughs> so I I don't I don't really know that. Um, hey, this is a good way to tie it into our new favorite podcast subject, which is the Fast and the Furious. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and finally, and, uh, and I'll I'll get off the rant about it, but. So bullet time in the game, if you remember that, it was the first game that had uh, the slow motion effect of of you could enter into this freeze frame where time slows down and, and helps you aim. The whole point of that in the game was to Max Payne, the character, is supposed to be such an excellent marksman that he can react faster than other people and, and you know make these impossible shots as he's diving through a window and shoot four different people across the room. The only reason that was in the game is to give the player the ability to control that. Right. You know, it, it slows on time, lets you aim as fast as you normally do, and you can shoot all these people. And then it, you know, it turned off. The, they did that in the movie, and they had these slow motion scenes just for sake of having slow motion bullet scenes. They never really talk about Max Payne being a great shot or a lot. There's just random bullet slowdown CGI scenes. Sounds like a it's, boardroom had a checklist of things about the game 
yeah, like, hey, we got to have bullet time in here. We, we got to do this and it'd be it'd be fantastic. No, it was it was horrible. So um, also there was a big scene of um, so in the game, Max Payne has several hallucinations um, because he has interactions with the V drug and he ends up actually getting it forced into him at some point. So he ends up having hallucinations. Plus, you know, the fact dealing with his family was murdered. Um, he's going a little bit crazy because people don't believe him there. He's finding out again in the game. He finds out his partner double crossed them. There's this big corporate uh, tycoon that's out there and, and kind of taking over things where he has hallucinations. The movie decides to interpret that as angels and demons wasn't even mentioned in the, in the game whatsoever. So I don't know really why they brought like heaven and hell aspect into it with angels and demons and that sort of thing, but it was just confusing and frustrating. So Max Payne, <laughs> it was such an enjoyable game to play through and watch that story being told that the movie just doesn't even bother to honor it a little bit. I don't. Yeah. Think. I think we could probably put most video game adaptions on this list Obviously, that one is is close to your heart as some, a game you really appreciated and, and a movie that wasn't a good adaption. I think most video game movies are bad adaptions, although I don't really care about most of the games that, that have been turned into films, so I, I haven't taken anything personally. I will, because the Uncharted movie is in production, and I love <laughs> the Uncharted series, and uh, good old Marky Mark is in that one as well. Is he playing the main no, character? No, he's he was going to play the main character when a version was being worked on like ten years ago, but now he's playing uh, Sully. Okay, really hope they. I'm adding this surprise entry on this list. A future disappointment is the Uncharted film. I'm going to be really disappointed <laughs> in it as an adaption. All right, that brings us to our final two entries on the list. I've been debating in my head what order to do them in. I'm going to do them in reverse order of how I was planning, because I think you are not aware of the reason why the Bourne Identity is a disappointing adaption. So I'm going to talk about I Am Legend first, and we'll save Bourne for the end, even though I think I Am Legend is is possibly even worse. Um, These are both similar in the sense that the movies miss not just the premise, but the fact that the premise is actually in the title. And they both miss it. So, I Am Legend. The movie stars Will Smith. Hey, Will Smith's second appearance on this list. I think it's a, it's a good movie. I, think, I know a lot of people really like this movie. It's, I think it's fine. I don't think it's amazing. I'm not a big fan of scary movies, and it has some scary scenes in yeah, it. So like I, jump I don't, scares. And... I think I've watched it one and a half times and just stopped watching it the second time. I saw it in theaters, picked it up couple years later and, and watched part of it. I don't really enjoy it, but I not because it's a bad movie. I, I think it's a fine movie, except the ending. We'll get to that. <laughs> so the general premise is some viral infection has wiped out New York City or the country or the planet. And Will Smith really is the only person left who's unaffected. And he is attempting to find a cure while he is also fending off these creatures that the survivors of this plague have mutated into. And the creatures are CGI zombies, sort of. They're basically zombies. They come out at night. They they remind me of zombie vampires, like just the way they look. They're pale. Right. So they have some vampiric qualities to them in that they are pale and they seem to avoid sunlight. Beyond that, though, they're more like zombies. They 
zombies are super powered zombies. They run really fast. They leap everywhere. Um, they have unhingeable jaws. Apparently they do the mummy thing with the super long jaw yeah. and they yell, but basically it's a zombie movie. Everybody's been turned into a zombie except Will Smith. And they're, they're zombies that come out at night. I know that. So you use the word vampires and there's a reason why I've heard a lot of people use the word vampires because that's what they are in the book. They're not zombies. They're vampires. Ah, okay. But in the movie, I argue, and I think I'm accurate in saying they are more like zombies than vampires. Yeah. They don't talk. I, I, they're, they're monsters in the movie. Whereas yeah, a vampire classically vampires are, you know, they're, wearing tuxedos or something you know they're they're human like <laughs> until they reveal their long fangs you know if you go the old dracula stories they're monsters kind of like zombies maybe a little bit of vampire qualities in the movie and then the movie at the end there's two endings in the movie and the alternate ending that wasn't used i think is way better and makes it a much better movie with one caveat that we'll get to so the canon ending of the movie the one that was shown in the theatrical cut is will smith has captured one of the monsters and has tested his cure on it and it works it looks like she's turning back into a human she's no longer got a pulse of 400 and she's no no veins popping out anymore she's yep. looking like a normal human he's behind a plexiglass bulletproof glass wall and he's got a lady and a kid with him that he found at some point in the movie. It's been a while since I've seen it, so I don't remember all the details. But <laughs> all the monsters I, I show up. They find him, well. and the lead monster reveals through his grunting and roaring that the monster that Will Smith captured and is curing is his girlfriend. And he wants her back. And he's gonna. they're going to murder Will Smith. They're going to get to him by headbutting the glass, apparently. Um, that's how they're going to break it down. And he's he's yelling, I can save you. They don't understand. They're going to they're going to tear it down. So he helps the lady and the and the boy that are with him for some reason escape while he blows up the monsters with a grenade. Yep. The alternate ending that wasn't shown in theaters, and I think it was actually the original ending that the director wanted. And I can see why, because I think it's better for the film. The alternate ending is he gives the girl that he captured the monster is a girl. He gives it back to the other monsters and the main, the lead monster you realizes that that's her, that's his girlfriend. So he right. gives her back and they, they leave. So then Will Smith can take the cure and they escape and they're going to drive up the road to a military base or something. And hopefully you know, there's a, for hope for yeah, tomorrow they've cure got up. a cure etc so i think that's a better ending for the movie it's way less exciting and will smith doesn't go out in a blaze of glory so i get why they changed it for the movie but neither of them should have been called i am legend because i am legend the book everybody is affected by a plague except the main character who i for the life of me can't remember his name because it's been like 15 years since I read the book. I think it's Robert. Robert Neville. There uh, we go. So Robert Neville is the sole survivor of this plague. This plague does not turn the population into zombies or monsters. It turns them into vampires, it turns them into human creatures who 
don't go out at night. The sunlight hurts them. They are afraid of or allergic to garlic. They have pointy teeth and they drink blood. They are vampires. vampires. They are far more like vampires than they are zombies. And in the book, he's doing experiments. He's trying to find a cure. He's trying to solve this problem. But what he's really doing is he's going out at night and he's killing these things. Wherever he can find them, he's hunting them and killing them because they hibernate at night. So he goes out every night and he finds nests of these things and he kills them. There's a, at one point he, again, he finds a female, but he actually is fooled into thinking it's another human because this is why it's, I know it's very different because you would never be fooled into thinking one of the movie monsters is a human. No. Yeah. It's impossible. It'd be impossible. Cause right. they're like, I'm actually, I'm looking at a picture of it right now. They and are like, monsters. Yeah. They don't have hair. They're, you know, their eyes They're entirely are... computer generated because they wanted them to be monsters. So in, right. in the book, Robert Neville meets a human. He thinks a woman, and then it turns out she's actually one of these vampires who was using some kind of makeup or, or shield of some kind to be seen in the sun momentarily to fool him into thinking that she's a human. And this ultimately leads to his capture by the vampires. So the ending of the book, he's been captured. He's I think he's tied to a chair and they're ready to execute him. And he hears them talking and he hears the whispers and he realizes they're all terrified of him because he goes out at night and hunts them all. And so it turns out twist all, everybody in the world is a vampire and they're all terrified of this one solitary creature who comes out at night, the human. So it's a reversal of the vampire legend. And so it ends, the story ends with him thinking, I am legend. I am legend. That's the whole, the title of it is the twist ending. I am legend. It's a reversal of a legend. The movie has, it's (laughs) like, they just made a monster movie and stuck the title. I am legend on it. And it drives me crazy because it was a decent movie. But why put the name? I am legend when that's not what it's about. It'd be like putting, you know, we're going to put Pulp Fiction on a movie about (laughs) Spider-Man. That's not what it's about. That's it has nothing to do with it. That had to be such a cool moment reading it for the first time then and realizing that's why they call it I Am Legend. Yes, it was a very cool moment reading it and then immediately saying, oh, wait, that movie was oh, terrible. Wait. <laughs> so that's that's my feelings about I Am Legend. It makes me angry, as you might be able to tell, just because it's such a great idea and they completely threw the the premise out and just used the title for a completely unrelated story. And again, that could have made it such an awesome movie as well. Like imagine seeing that in theaters where, you know, again, Will Smith gets captured. This is big thing. He's about to get killed. And he hears them talking. And you don't even have <laughs> about... to have the words spoken. Just have them talking about how terrified they are of him and then cut to the title and the credits roll. I am legend. Right. Would have been great. That oh, it would have been awesome. It, it wouldn't have worked the, with the way that movie was, but I could see a movie like that working. Sure. I'm going to interject before we get to the Born Identity. I'm going to interject one more that I forgot because I've never actually watched the movie. I tried. I rented the movie. It was purchased for me because everyone knows I love this book. And I tried watching the movie because I love the book. And I stopped after 
30 minutes and I hated myself for 29 of those minutes for watching <laughs> the film adaption of Ender's Game. Ender's Game is one of my favorite books. I've read it one of them, three or four times. I've read the whole series, at least the Ender's Saga. There's a side saga that I haven't read, but I've read the Ender Saga and I've read the book Ender's Game multiple times. It is fantastic. There's some weird stuff in it, but overall, the, the way the author puts the story together is captivating. You cannot put it down. It's one of those books where when I pick it up, even if it's the third time I've read it, I pick it up. <laughs> you're, oh, you're going so to I'm read up it. till 4 a.m. finishing it. Yep. It's fantastic. And the movie is just complete and utter Not. nonsense. <laughs> and I, again, I've only seen the first 30 minutes of it. So maybe it turns into the most amazing movie ever after that. I've watched clips of bits at the end. But part of the problem is, is that the book takes, the story takes place over something like, Six years, I think. I think he's eight or nine when he's recruited to this program. Ender is a child genius who's recruited to a military training program to help fight a war against aliens. And over the course of this training program, it's years long. Maybe it's four years. I don't remember exactly how long it is, but years pass and he's a teenager or a young adult by the time the finale takes place. But the movie, it's obviously it's just the same actor. So... You get the idea that this entire story and things that occur and just in the third first 30 minutes, because, again, I missed I, I didn't follow it through to the end. But I, I know I've seen bits at the end and it's the actor looks the same age. They didn't make any attempt to make it look like he aged. And even in the first 30 minutes, thing events occur that I know in the book were years apart. And it seems ah. like they all took place over maybe one day. You, there's no passage so again, of time. It's just, it's, hey, this fun thing. Ha- oh, no, this. Oh, and we're ready to have a fight with the aliens. And you get no sense. It's enough that, to infuriate you when you've read the book. I can totally understand. Yeah. Ender is a character who you live in his brain for the whole book. You hear his thoughts and you, you grow sure. with him. You learn what's going on with him. And in the movie, it's just he's just quiet and sad. And it's almost like the characters are turning to the screen and saying, you know, you know what he's thinking here, right? I hope so, because we don't know how to portray all his thoughts <laughs> on screen. Maybe it's an unfilmable book because much of it is him thinking. It's a lot of military strategy and combat techniques. That's all his thoughts that are written down. And so it's very interesting, but you can't really portray that on a film easily. Everybody's trying to find the next Harry Potter. There are <laughs> yeah. six to 12, I think, Ender series books, depending on whether you use just the Ender saga or the whole universe. And so I can see why somebody greenlit the project. But the yeah, the problem is, is when you don't put a huge budget behind it and make it a big deal and you don't base it on a book that's see, probably meant for I've, screen. See. And I've never read the Harry Potter books. I've only seen the movie, so I wouldn't know if I'd be disappointed after reading the books and details they've missed out and all that. But I think the general consensus is that was a pretty good adaptation. I think I've read the books and I've watched the movies. Generally, I think they're pretty good adaptations. I think they they get worse towards the end, even though I think the movies are still pretty good towards the end of the series. Yeah, the adaptions get worse because I think the books got longer and harder to adapt towards the end. Sure, but that's um. That's a whole separate subject. I don't think any of them are bad enough adaptions that they would qualify for this conversation. Um, But yeah, (laughs) similar issues. When you adapt a well-written book, you're going to have problems. But I think that one was 
just awful. All right, tangent over. Let's get to the the final born identity, the final film on the list, the Born Identity. This is similar to I Am Legend in that the premise is in the title, and the movie just discards it. So, what is the premise of the Born Identity? The movie. Jason Bourne wakes up in the water. He's got amnesia. He's been shot. Doesn't know who he is. And from your perspective, you've watched the movie. Who yeah. is Jason Bourne? Who does he ultimately find out that he is? I mean, he's a government trained um, super soldier, basically. He's amazing at everything he He's does. an assassin. He actually, yeah. at one point, he says it means because they, they hear a news report or they, they see an article that reveals something about him and he says, it means I'm an assassin. And it is revealed over the rest of the series that, yes, he's an assassin. He was the first of his kind special training program where they brainwash people to become assassins. Um, not brainwash, they volunteer, but then they beat them into submission. They volunteer, but make them right. into yeah. weapons. He is a weapon working for the government who has killed innocent people because he was following orders. That's the that's yep. the, the sort of twist. It's not even a twist because it's kind of obvious from the beginning, um, but the twist to him is discovering his fears are true. He's an assassin. And then the rest of the movie and the series is him saying, I don't want to be an assassin anymore. That's not who I am. I'm going to, right. I'm going to break down the actual government program and I'm going to make sure it doesn't happen right. again. I think it's a great series, great trilogy. I would say not a great series, but a great trilogy of movies. Yeah, I never saw the one with, uh, with uh, Hawkeye. I don't know. It's really Jeremy like Renner stars Jeremy Renner. in The Born yeah. Legacy. It's okay. It's got some really good scenes in it. It's not a good movie, and it has a terrible ending, in my opinion. <laughs> and then the fourth Born, Jason Born movie, Jason Born, is weird, and we should totally discuss that on this podcast. I think it'd be very entertaining. I need to watch it. So, yeah. I'll have to watch it. Watch it sure. and take some notes when you do. But the trilogy. <laughs> is really good. I think they're great movies. I think Matt Damon does a great job. I think that they're very exciting movies about an assassin who has changed his ways and now fights back against the system that created him. Great movie. But that's not what The Born Identity is about. (laughs) The Born Identity is about an identity. So in the book, Jason Bourne wakes up floating in the water. He's been shot. He has amnesia. He finds a bank account number in his hip. It's using older technology than the movie portrays because the books are from the 80s. But (laughs) a very similar plot. He then discovers that he is an assassin. He finds out that he's an assassin and he starts living. He starts picking up where he left off, basically. He starts picking up the, the trails of his the, of breadcrumbs, the trails of his life that he's f- f- finding. He picks up after sure. that. He starts going after this rival assassin. He he starts living the life of this assassin in the movie. It's actually in the sorry in the book. It's not Jason Bourne. It's Kane is this this identity, this assassin um, that that he discovers that he is, and he starts being this person. He's got all these skills and it fits, and he he is this assassin. But then the twist is. There is no Cain. It was an identity that was invented to try to draw out a real assassin. Jason Bourne is a CIA agent who's highly trained and has worked with a crew, a team, to create evidence in the world of this, air quotes, assassin that exists, this Cain. 
even though he does. But he doesn't exist. He's a, he's a, an identity that they've created. But then when he gets shot and loses his memory, he wakes up. He's got all these skills and all the evidence he sees points to him being this assassin. So that's what makes it <laughs> so, an interesting story is that he thinks he is an assassin because all the evidence points he, to the fact that he's an assassin. And the twist is that's because they literally created this identity that points to him being an assassin intentionally. Then he loses his memory and thinks it's all real and starts living as this assassin. So it's like playing an elaborate prank on somebody then having them knock themselves out somehow and wake up thinking that it's a hundred percent real and trying to live with it. Right. <laughs> yeah. The, the whole premise is that it is an identity. And so he, his amnesia makes him think that he is this identity. And then the, the twist and the culmination of the book is him discovering that he's not, and then figuring out how to solve the mess he's got himself into. Whereas the movie so just what? says, no, he really just is an assassin, which then begs the question, yeah, why? What is the born identity? Because <laughs> Why in the book, the born identity is this identity that Jason Bourne has created and then assumes is his real life. In the movie, the born identity is just who Jason Bourne is. Yeah, right. So that, that makes me wonder why they chose that direction and did just make it a spy movie and not call it the born identity I assume at that point. that whoever was writing the screenplay just was really struggling to figure out how to put that on screen. You'll notice there was no rival assassin. The villain is the CIA. Why though? Like that's not even, that doesn't sound like that's any part of the actual book. Well, in, in the book that the CIA does come after him because he starts. So well, he, yeah. Cause if he so thinks he's created he's an assassin, the identity he probably... of an assassin, he takes on that identity because he thinks it's really who he is. And he starts doing some things that then cause the CIA to think he's gone rogue. And so the CIA sure. is a villain. They're, they're not a villain. They're an antagonist in the book that he, but he ultimately does then convince them of his innocence by the end. And then they work together to try to take down the, the real villain. They don't, it's a long story. The book series is actually like 15 books long. The, oh, the wow. original author only wrote the first three and then subsequent authors have written many, many, many more books, but got it. It's a complex story. I've actually only read the first book, but I think the book is fantastic. And it's a really interesting idea of what if you worked really, really, really hard to create real world evidence of an identity that you could conv that would convince other people that you are this person that doesn't exist. Right. And then you lost your memory. <laughs> would you believe that you were the person because you were trying to make it so everyone else would? And then you lose you for you have lose all knowledge that you fabricated this, right. and all of a sudden you are in it, and it's you. It's a really interesting idea. I could see why it would be challenging to make a movie about that, but it goes back to my same argument for I Am Legend, which is if you want to make a cool spy movie, go ahead, do it. Don't use the name of a book if you're going to ignore the premise of the book. Right. Agreed. All right. Well, I think that wraps up our discussion of movies that missed the mark, missed opportunities, wasted source material. I haven't decided for sure what we're going to call this episode. So anyway, yep. yeah, these were disappointing. These these broke our hearts, which is what makes them stand out more than just really bad movies, because we cared about the source material for these. We really, really like what they could have been. 
and ultimately weren't. I just want to say I really appreciate everybody who has listened so far. It's not many so far, but there are a number of people who've uh, done us favors and listened. And I don't know if we have any listeners that we don't know, if anybody's discovered the podcast through just searching or maybe a friend of a friend has seen a, a shared Stumble post upon it, or, or link. Um, but everybody who's listening, we really appreciate it. I really uh, would love more feedback, suggestions. We have gotten some feedback, got some positive feedback on the Fast and Furious review. Um, I think we're going to be revisiting the Fast and Furious series maybe more frequently than I plan because <laughs> it seems like there's a little more positive buzz around that episode that we've released. People really like the Fast and Furious movies and they're delightful. I, I can understand why they're corny and fun. So I think maybe we'll be revisiting uh, that series in the next two to three episodes. We wanted to change the format up a little bit for this one. Any suggestions for new formats or specific movies that you'd like us to cover, email them to us. The email address is in the show notes. Love to hear it. Thanks for listening, everybody.